Welcome to this edition of Middle Market Musings, the podcast devoted to the people and ideas of the middle market. I'm Andy Greenberg of Greenberg Variations Capital. And I'm Charlie Gifford of New Heritage Capital. Today we are speaking with Ed Bagdazarian, CEO of Intrepid, a Los Angeles-based investment bank. Before we start, Andy and I would like to thank our two main sponsors, Greenberg Variations Capital and New Heritage Capital, as well as our media partner, PE Professional Digest. We wouldn't be anywhere without their support. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of Middle Market Musings. Ed Bagdazarian, CEO of Intrepid, welcome to Middle Market Musings. Great to be here, Charlie and Andy. So happy that you've decided to join us, Ed. You, I will say that you are the first CEO of a mid-market investment bank that was born in Romania of Armenian heritage that we've uh, had the pleasure of speaking to on Middle Market Musings. So really excited that you've uh, decided to join us today. I'm excited to be here, Charlie. So is this interview going to be in Romanian, Armenian, or English? <laughs> well, if it's not in the latter, I think we're going to all have a hard time. So why don't we stick with English and maybe we can pivot later. I'll do my um, best. But Ed, let's start. You have a background that is uh, unlike most middle market musings guests. You have a, a fascinating story to tell um, that uh, spanned many decades over different continents. But maybe we could just, uh, you can share with us a little bit about your background, where you're from, how you ended up in the States. Um, maybe you can pick it up from there. I'd be happy to, Charlie, and hope not to bore you to death with my background. But let me tell you a little bit about it. So I'm you got that right. I'm Armenian, but to confuse things, actually, I was born and grew up in Romania. So that makes me an immigrant, but I'm also a son of an immigrant and a grandchild of, an, of immigrants. My grandparents fled Turkey in 1914 when they fled the Armenian genocide. They settled in Romania, and that's where my parents were born, and that's where I was born. I guess I bring an immigrant ethic to my workplace and to my life. So, so born in Romania, um, when did you first immigrate to the States? Well, we, re we left Romania in 1978, and we spent a few months in Italy to gain clearance, clearance to, a, to a land in, in the United States. That was the rule at the time. And we actually landed in Los Angeles in February of 1979. Why Los Angeles? Well, Charlie, we didn't have a choice to land anywhere else because our extended family already lived in Los Angeles. So we left Romania and our entire extended family lived in Los Angeles. So we came and settled here in one of the tougher neighborhoods in Los Angeles. And we landed with lifetime savings of $5,000 that my dad brought. Actually, he smuggled out of Romania because you couldn't take money out of a socialist regime at the time. What did your father do for a living once you settled here? Well, my dad knew how to do only one thing for a living, which is ever since he was 13 years old, he learned the jewelry goldsmith business. And... He was a jeweler, which means he was a designer and a, and, a, and a craftsman. So he didn't know how to do anything else. So he found a place downtown where he could use his skills to repair jewelry and design jewelry and make jewelry. So you're 14 years old in a new country. How was your English? I had studied one year of English in Romania, which means that it was pretty awful. Uh, I uh, remember, Charlie, you talk about 
learning and growing up fast uh, in the early days. Um, we, I was in my English class, eighth grade, and they made a mistake. They were supposed to put me in the English as a second language class. They did not. They put me in a regular English class. And first day in English class, the teacher says, uh, everything, put everything, all your books under your desk we have in a pop quiz. And the pop quiz is you all have to write a poem about the Beatles. Now, mind you, growing up in Romania, you have no idea who the Beatles are during socialism, right? So not only I thought it was a bug, so I only know a few words in English. So how could you make them rhyme and write something about something <laughs> that you don't know anything about? That was a stressful moment for me. So you grow fast after that. I love it. I love it. Good. Quite a poem. You you worked uh, you worked in your dad's shop. Andy, I uh, the family came together to help my dad. We it was survival mode because we had five thousand dollars to make it work in a new country, which means my dad very quickly started a he opened up a jewelry manufacturing shop with no customers and not a whole lot of savings to fall on. So my brother and I would go after school to help my dad. My mom was working with him. And we were doing multiple things all together. We were looking for customers. We were helping my dad produce the products and sell the products. So you could say it was a family operation. And I, I want to dig in here because, you know, so much of being an investment banker, for that matter, financial professional, is being adaptable. You know, we end up needing to be different things in, in different situations. Starting off with such a strong inside-outside experience, you know, on the one hand, you're an outsider in a strange con country. On the other, it sounds like you have the intense experience of being an insider within this family group making something happen. As a young guy, how did those, those two impulses balance out? Well, when you don't speak the language very well and you are in a new environment, you have to do a lot of listening and a lot of observing and you have to get street smart really quick. And so I figured out pretty quickly that I needed to make good decisions and be very adaptable. I'll give you some, some examples. I was not the most popular kid in my school. I could barely speak the language. I was kind of keeping to, my, to myself. And I was actually a very good student because one thing about education in Romania during socialism, it's actually quite advanced. So when I started in eighth grade, I was at a level of what typically you learn here in high school between, I had already taken physics and chemistry and some advanced math classes. So what I figured out is that if I could do really well in school, all of a sudden people would be nice to me because they would want my help. And that's that's one of the things that I did. And then secondly, when um, I went to, I was really focused on finding work for my dad to help my dad, like everybody in the family was pretty much hands-on in the business. We were all trying to figure out how to survive. So I remember this one day, Andy, that I was sitting in English class in my classroom and one kid next to me had a keychain that says, Carlos Jewelers. And immediately the light bulb went off and I said, oh, this guy must be connected to this retail store. Maybe my dad can do work. So I asked him, how are you connected to Carlos Jewelers? And he said, my sister is the manager there. 
I told them about my dad. I asked them if we can make an introduction. Long story short, my dad starts doing business with Carlos Jeweler, who happens to be a really not a good guy. <laughs> I will tell you the story because it, it has a lesson here, which is if you do good work, even if you land in some bad accounts, you could still benefit from it ultimately. Good things happen to people who do consistently good work. So long story short, the one of the people who used to work for Carlos, who was not, like I said, a very good guy, ended up going and working for a competitor. And he called my dad and he said, you know, Nazareth, that was my dad's name. Would you like to do work for this new chain that I just joined? And my dad said, of course. So long story short, that chain ends up doing more and more work with my dad. And they ultimately expand to become one of the largest jewelry chains in Southern California, serving the Hispanic market. And so my dad's business went from barely making a living to thriving because he was doing good work for people who appreciated and expanded from one location to 30 plus locations. And then competing stores started. So those competing stores started doing business with my dad. So my dad's business boomed all from observing a keychain sitting on a classroom desk. So other than uh, serving as a uh, a source of new business for your dad, did you ever work in the business? Oh my gosh, after school, many times I would go. And Charlie, I will tell you, I used to do things that I would never let my kids do. So my dad, because he was short-staffed, he didn't have employees at the very beginning. He needed to buy gold because he needed to melt gold and make jewelry. So he would give me a stack of $100 bills. He would ask me to go to a gold dealer downtown LA. So here's a kid, 14, 15 years old, running around the streets of downtown LA with a few thousand dollars of cash in my pocket, going to in the you know 10th floor of a building downtown LA to buy gold, and then running back to my dad to give him that gold. How <laughs> do you think you'd let your kids run around with cash downtown LA at that time? Not when they're 15 years old. So- you grow up fast doing those things. It's a it's a great story, and and I, I people listeners of Middle Market Musings know we don't spend a lot of time on people's background because there's a lot to get to, and it's the same with you. But I think your background is so uh, unique and clearly has formed the person who you are today. So I do think it'd be fun to spend a little bit more time on that. And to that end, be curious about, uh, in your words, how does being an immigrant to this country kind of define and form who you are today. Listen, I think as an immigrant, you you learn this many of the same life lessons that you learned growing up here if you're not an immigrant, except the difference is some of these experiences are more jolting and they're more, um, more extreme as, as an immigrant. It goes to the same life lessons of work ethic and understanding your advantage and how you take advantage of certain situations uh, and you know being a good person I, I will I will tell you that um, uh, going back to the immigrant situation I had to nobody knew me so I had to prove my worth by doing good work through my work ethic just watching my dad doing good work so he can get more business right so my philosophy in everything that I've done through school and after school was, I'm not going to ask for something. I'm going to prove my worth. And then probably I'm going to get recognized for the value that I bring. 
you, you, you made your own opportunity as a foothold in finance, isn't that right? I, I, I did, Andy, and I, I'll tell you the, the, how I got into the, the, the financial uh, world and the financial economy was that I was actually planning on becoming a jeweler. I wanted to take my dad's business forward and start a chain of retail stores in jewelry, but I went to UCLA. I started school there as an undergrad. And I started reading, a, a family friend suggested I read Forbes magazine. And I started reading Forbes, and all of a sudden, I fell in love with the financial stories, the uh, stock market, Wall Street, uh, mergers and acquisitions, all the stories that I used to read. And I remember that in my first summer vacation after my freshman year, I started working for a clearing firm called Pershing in the mailroom. And I started delivering statements to the money managers in downtown LA. And I got to know many of these money managers. And I start, started to befriend some of them. And when school started again, my sophomore year, I had to get a part-time job. I couldn't do the full-time job in the mailroom anymore. So I went over to one of the money managers that I had gotten to know. And I talked him into hiring me for free so I can prove my worth and then ultimately work for him. So to your point, you kind of make your own your own future by delivering and working hard. And before we get into um, uh, your day job uh, as CEO of, of Intrepid, as well as your time at Barrington, Barrington before that, um, hearing your story and your background um, and, and learning from your father the 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 the, the real benefits of of hard work and tenacity. Um, you have two kids your own. Uh, and their father is the CEO of an investment bank. How have you or have you been able to uh, instill that same work ethic um, that was instilled in you? Good question, Charlie. I, I think that we don't give kids enough credit of how perceptive they are. Uh, they learn a lot by just watching and observing probably more than what they're being told. And the reason that I learned so much when I was growing up, I had a role model in my dad. And I just watched, I observed what he did. And I think a lot of it applies to the way my wife and I raised our kids. We're both pretty hard workers. And just the values we instilled in them didn't come from us lecturing them on what to do, but by showing by example, the things we did the types of uh, how we spent our time and what we valued. Uh, I think that's what they picked up. They picked up that, uh, you know, I would bring up uh, stories from without mentioning names necessarily, but we would talk around the breakfast table or the dinner table, what some of our clients do and some of the decisions they make and some of the challenges that I encounter and my wife encountered in her work. Uh, and they just overheard. And by listening to those stories, I think that they started to pick up a lot of how they ended up acting. Did they identify at all with your heritage? I mean, they've spent their entire, they were born in Los Angeles. They've lived their entire life in Los Angeles. Do they possess any of that identity? Um, you know, uh, they don't speak the language. I did not teach them Romanian or Armenian because I felt they're not very useful languages here. But uh, of course, they picked up uh, 
many of our traditions because we go for the holidays we used to go visit grandma and grandpa and uh, also they used to visit my my wife's parents and the same thing we're a, we've all valued families and we all value being close-knit together with the rest of the family members and so they picked up a lot of that um, I, I'm not sure they care so much for some of the food <laughs> that they grew up with, uh, yeah. but I think they, uh, in secret, they would uh, they would confess that they like some of that cooking as well. That's great. So you graduated from UCLA. You joined Barrington Associates in January of 1989. Um, I think of Mike Rosenberg and Jim Friedman. Uh, who else was there when you joined in uh, January of 89? Uh, Mike Rosenberg and Jim Friedman. You were number three. That's cool. <laughs> I was, I was number three. Listen, the story is very simple. I mean, I wanted to get into the M&A business. It was not the first job I got out of uh, UCLA. I uh, first joined this one money manager that I mentioned to you that uh, I got to know. And I worked for that guy for uh, all throughout uh, my undergrad uh, years. And uh, when I was in my last year, I joined them right out of school for about a year and a half. And it was a it was an incredible learning experience. But one of the things that I also learned is timing is very important. We started the wealth management business in 1987. As you might remember, Bloody Monday in October happened. October 19th happened uh, in 1987. So I learned a lot in that experience. I also learned about the M&A business a little bit. And a year and a half later, I decided I really, really wanted to learn more about M&A and the firm that I was with was not so much focused on M&A. So I told my uh, senior partner boss at the time that I was planning on leaving, and he was sad to see that happen, but he says, look, I'm gonna, you've been uh, a stand-up person, you helped me out, so I'm gonna help you find your next opportunity. So he helped me network, and through that experience, I met Jim Friedman and Mike Rosenberg, who were two guys in Brentwood, sitting in a little office on San Vicente, and uh, they were looking for somebody to do some free labor. And I was looking for somebody to teach me the M&A business. So I kind of conned them into believing I knew something about M&A. And he, they pretended they were paying me because they offered me 500 bucks a month. That was my pay. Nice. And 10% of the deals I worked on. And I had no idea what 10% of the deals I worked on meant. I knew what 500 bucks meant. And I knew it was, I could make it happen at that time. I could make it work for 500 bucks. So I joined them. I wanted to learn the business. Listen, my philosophy, Charlie, was if I'm really good at what I do and that pay is not sufficient, they're going to pay me more to keep me there. And if I'm really horrible at what I do, they're probably overpaying me. So it kind of works itself out. That was my philosophy. I, I have a, a friend, actually, father of one of my friends, who's in his 90s now, who's a legendary surgeon and was a disciple of a legendary surgeon here in Philadelphia. And I, I asked him once, what made a great surgeon? And he said, to be great, you've got to be, you've got to be great at three things. You've got to be great in the uh, operating room. You've got to be a great cl clinician. You've got to be great at research. What makes a great investment banker? It's a great question, Andy. Uh, I think that as an investment banker to be successful, you have to, you have to be a good listener, number one. You have to listen to your client. You have to understand your client. Number two, you have to be incredibly tenacious. You cannot take no for an answer. And failure is just a turn on to try to <laughs> try again and, uh, and uh, achieve the unachievable. 
And uh, thirdly, listen, I think you have to, um, to have a lot of good judgment because you're going to run into situations that you haven't encountered before. Nobody gives you an instruction manual on how to be an investment banker or how to close a deal. You got to figure it out. If you look at Jim Friedman, Mike Rosenberg, and myself, none of us came from Wall Street. We had no idea how to build an investment bank. But what we did know is that we wanted to build a place that would be such an attractive place to work that we would like to work for that company ourselves. That was our guiding principle. But it's it's common sense. And to that, I will tell you my very first deal. I joined my partners at the time. They were not my partners. They were my bosses in 1989. And they, it was in January of 89. They gave me my first assignment in February. And it was the largest Apple computer retailer in California. That sounds like a lot. But remember, Apple was not what Apple is today in 1989. These were eight stores doing $40 million in revenue. And I knew nothing about mergers and acquisitions. <laughs> and I remember that we set up a time to go meet with the client for the first time to kick off due diligence. Mm -hmm. And I asked Mike Rosenberg, I said, Mike, um, you're coming with me, right? Because we have an appointment at two o'clock. He goes, no, I got a conflict. You have to take this one on your own. And I said, Mike, I don't, I've never done a deal. I don't know what to do. Then he says, you'll figure it out. Here's a due diligence list. And he gave me a due diligence list. So I'm driving over to this client. I'm sitting down in the room with him. I'm not sure what to ask him. So I figure the natural question would be, tell me how you started this business, what motivated you, and what your vision is. And this guy looks at me. He doesn't say anything for about 20 seconds. His eyes are tearing up. <laughs> and he starts crying. And I'm thinking to myself, this is a bad start. I'm asking the first question. The client starts crying. This is not good. <laughs> mm -hmm. But the reason the guy was crying, he basically was kind of falling apart, was that he was losing money so fast he couldn't count it. And what he told me when he gained his composure, he said, Ed, I invested everything in this company and I'm about to lose it. Do you think you can save me? You can save my company. So I wasn't very experienced, but I knew one thing that if I told the guy no, he would have fallen apart completely. That was not a good outcome. So I said, of course, Heath, of course we can save your company. Don't worry about it. We got it. And it turns out he had the reason he was in trouble. This, this guy, he had literally pledged everything, personally guaranteed the loan. He had made a big computer purchase and Apple introduced a new model three weeks after he made that purchase. So he was stuck with the old model. So he was upside down on his bank loan. That was the beginning of my career in investment banking. We that got is... the deal done. And I learned another lesson, by the way, Andy, that ignorance is bliss. Because I- Also, yeah. you had the investment banking gene. The, the answer to that question is, you know, can my business be saved? Yes. The details <laughs> and thought process to follow. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, we'll figure it out. That was it, crazy. But I tell you, the reason ignorance is bliss is that if I knew then what I know now about how unsaleable that company was, I would have walked out of that room when the guy asked me the question. I mean, it was 30 days away from filing bankruptcy. And I didn't know that. But I put my head down, walked through walls, and I got the deal done. And it was a little bit of a miracle that we got the deal done. But yes, we got the guy off the personal guarantees. He walked away with a little bit of money, and he didn't have to file Chapter 11.
Yeah, I, th I think, look, I think everybody, you know, you learn from, you know, your early accounts, the marginal deals, the misfires. And one thing you learn is you don't want to repeat a lot of those experiences, but it's very valuable. Take us through the rest of the, the evolution of Barrington and the ultimate sale of that business. Listen, one thing I can say about, there are many good memories that I have, great memories I have about uh, our first firm, Barrington. Um, and um, it business used to be a lot more fun those days, I have to tell you. <laughs> we, we used to we used to hang out together. We used to do, uh, the learning curve was extraordinary because there was only three of us. When one of us was on a deal call, the other two would go listen in and we would learn by osmosis. So our experience was exponential. The growth was exponential. So you talk about a deal team. We were a one-person deal team. We would draft, we'd do the diligence and draft the information memorandum and call potential buyers and do our own uh, you know, homework. So you learn fast in that environment. But, but you also, being a small firm, Andy, you learn that you have to be street smart and you have to be a business an entrepreneur yourself because you're not just representing entrepreneurs you got a business to run so you start paying attention to cash flow and paying people at the end of the month and making the rent payment so you develop certain skills that as an employee of a larger investment bank you don't have so that made much much more in tune with our our client base which was that entrepreneur that scrappy entrepreneur was there a, a practice making deal at Barrington where, you know, you, you got this one and you got it done and suddenly, you know, you just weren't guys operating out of the storefront. You, you felt like a, a real M&A firm. The deal that uh, actually didn't happen was very formative. So we are uh, very early on, we got hired to sell a chain of truck stops. Okay. Now, I didn't even know what a truck stop is. <laughs> so Char Charlie still doesn't know what truck stop. Yeah, yeah oh, no, no kidding, Charlie. You should hang out and check out some <laughs> truck stops. It'll change your life. Yeah. But but, uh, but I was asked. I was supposed to meet the client at one of their locations in Wicket, Texas. I don't even know what Wicket, Te Texas is. But when I showed up, I learned that the truck stop employed about fifty percent of the people who lived in Wicket. So, so these people looked a little different. They didn't look like our average people that I was accustomed to see. I showed up wearing a suit and the client said, Ed, go back to your hotel room and get rid of this suit and put some jeans on. These people had never seen a suit in their lives and they're going to freak out when they see you. So I go in and I change my clothes. I show up. And I go to the manager and I'm starting to ask him questions. Tell me how the truck stop operates. And, and in the middle of that discussion, the manager says, excuse me, I will be right back. And he reaches and he picks up a baseball bat from under the counter. He rushes to the restroom. I hear a lot of banging and screaming coming to the restroom. And he tells me, Everything is fine now. Let's proceed. And I'm a little bit concerned here. Like, what just happened? And he says, oh, no problem. There was a truck driver. He just peed around all over the place. I told him he had, he had to clean it up before he can leave this place. He'll be fine now. So listen, I learned in that experience that every business is different. 
you have to connect with your client. You cannot wear a suit. And, you know, it's like every business, even if it's a truck stop, can have a lot of value. You just need to dig up the values. So, yes, not, I think every, everything was upside from that point on. The interviews got a lot easier. There you go. And I have to take go on a quick segue. We, uh, for our listeners, we are doing this on Zoom. And I see, Ed, that you're not wearing a tie. And I always thought that the Barrington Intrepid guys were the last middle market investment bank uh, that wore ties to the office. So it looks like the standards have changed. Uh, standards have changed a little bit. So I'll tell you a little story. So when I actually took over as CEO of, of Intrepid in 2014, one of the very first things I decided to do was get rid of ties. And the reason was that, you know how you have to just connect with your audience, connect with your clients? Well, the business had changed from becoming a generalist business to a specialist business. So we have dedicated teams that focus on lifestyle brands, dedicated teams that go to software. So when we have a software, a tech entrepreneur or a, an apparel entrepreneur or a cosmetics entrepreneur come in, these people don't want to wear, they, they don't want their banker to wear, to see, uh, to, to wear suits and ties, right? So um, I said to my partners, look, guys, I think we got to we gotta make a change, get rid of the ties. And Mike Rosenberg was the, one of the most conservative guys that you're going to meet. He says, well, we can't do that. We have to dress better than our clients. We got to show them that we're a professional organization. I said, Mike, you can continue wearing your tie if you want to. Everybody else, it's, 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 uh, it's uh, ties optional. And I will tell you, removing a tie from Mike Rosenberg was like uh, like a, a surgical procedure. <laughs> he fought it all the way. Now, fast forward, you'll never see Mike wear a tie these days. He's yeah. the biggest proponent of business casual. He used to say business casual is casual business. And you got you to gotta dress up for, for business. Uh, but uh, no, listen, I think That's people funny. have to be comfortable. You got to wear you know proper clothing and attire. But uh, I think we gave up the ties a long time ago. You're listening to Middle Market Musings, brought to you by Greenberg Variations Capital and New Heritage Capital, along with our media partner, Private Equity Professional Digest. So, Ed, you sell to Wells Fargo in 2006. Wells gets bought by Wachovia. You're working for a large money center bank located on the uh, opposite coast. And then you formed uh, Intrepid, I think, in 2010. Is that right? Yes. Um, Was... I imagine it was always the plan that entrepreneurial itch among the three of you still really existed and you wanted to go out and start an, another business once your non-compete expired? Well, I'd like to say that was the case, but actually what we were looking to do, Charlie, is to get a little bit of office space where the three of us could hang out and play a lot of golf, manage our money, just have a good time and have a great life and maybe do a couple of deals a year. That business plan lasted for about 30 seconds. It doesn't work, right? Yeah. Uh, we were back on the treadmill, but let me let me back up for a moment and tell you why we why we sold Barrington to Wells to begin with. We were not looking to be sold. One day we got some knocks on our door and Wells called us and said, "Hey, we heard that you guys are a great middle market M and A shop, and uh, we're Wells Fargo. We don't want to buy a big Wall Street firm, but we're missing the M and A product. We'd like to buy you guys." And uh, this was uh, one of Dick Kovacevic's you know, top lieutenants making that call. We took the call. We listened to what they had to say. And we said, we're flattered, but we're not interested in selling to Wells. And they said, no, you don't understand. We're Wells Fargo. We're the fifth largest bank in the U.S. We'd like to buy you. And we said, no, we heard you, but we're not for sale. And they said, well, why don't you want to sell to us? And we basically, we said, listen, 
a commercial bank buying an investment bank pretty much has to have the worst record in M&A history of success. So we don't want to be another casualty and we don't want to retire. So their question was like, how would you wire the two to make the combination successful? So we came back to them with a list of five or six asks. And we said, if you guys can meet those requests, we're happy to become part of Wells. And we wired it, Charlie, to preserve the culture of Barrington at the time, preserve the compensation structure for our bankers, which was quite different, and make sure that there was support from the top to promote the cross-sell. We're one organization, and we're going to open up our client base to all of you to benefit. Long story short, the combination, combination was off the charts successful for two years. And when they bought Wachovia, that was 2006, Wells acquired Wachovia in 2008. It was a great transaction from Wells. And it was, we liked the folks at Wachovia, they're great people, but it was a very different business model. They were a traditional Wall Street firm. Two years later, Mike, Jim, and I decided, you know, we're not having so much fun anymore. We ought to go do something else. And yes, we were trying to get back to serving the entrepreneur. So that's when we told Wells that we were leaving and we had a few of our partners decide to join us. So now we start Intrepid in 2010. Why? Because honestly, we felt that we had an opportunity at Wells that we did not fulfill. And what was that opportunity? We really wanted to build a very special place, Charlie. I mean, we saw a lot of investment banks being sold. We love the culture that we had built at Barrington. We wanted to build that culture again. It, uh, give us the, uh, you know, the tail of the tape on Intrepid. Number of people you have now, uh, in, you, know, you mentioned a couple of the industry of silos that you focus in, areas of expertise. Yeah, so Andy, I'll tell you the what Intrepid is today in many ways, we're the same firm we were when we started it, in the sense that we have the same culture, we have the same ethos. We have uh, the, the snapshot of the firm today is we have 65 bankers. We are headquartered in Los Angeles. Uh, we have uh, locations that we opened up earlier this year in Chicago, New York, Charlotte, and Menlo Park. And there's a reason why we're opening up these locations, because one of the things that I learned over time is that location is less important than the talent you hire. And if I find the greatest talent in Charlotte or in Menlo Park or in Chicago or in Boston, I'm gonna hire that talent and I'm gonna work really, really, really hard to bring that individual or individuals inside our culture. So they don't feel like they're a branch office. We're one firm, one culture, very integrated in the way we think and what we value and how we go to market. These are not all independent offices from a supervisory standpoint. They're, they're, no, they're, they're independent offices, but they, they very much function seamlessly with the main office in Los Angeles. Okay. They're independent locations. And we're building teams in each one of these locations. We don't want a one-person outpost. We yeah. have significant teams that we're building in each location. Today, the way we go to market, I mean, again, you asked about what, what does Intrepid do? About 80% of what Intrepid does is sell side MA. That's been our core business all along. It's always been we're MA bankers at heart. But we do two other things as well. We do capital advisory, which means we raise junior capital for the same type of client base. And then we do a third thing that very, very few sell side firms like us do. We do buy side searches. We have a dedicated team 
that works with sponsors and major strategics to do retained searches. They don't provide M&A advice. They just identify, find proper targets for these uh, acquirers that we represent on a retained basis. Those are the three things. How does Intrepid compare to Barrington? It sounds like they were similar, but I'm sure there's uh, there's some differences. Charlie, the, we have the same culture, the same ethos, and the same values in the firm. That's those the, the similarities. We also are largely known as an M&A shop, and that's most of what we do. But the main difference between Barrington and Intrepid is that the world has changed. Barrington was a generalist, which, which means we had great M&A bankers serving a lot of different industries. The world has changed that today's entrepreneur does not just want to hire an M&A expert. The entrepreneur wants an M&A expert that deeply knows the industry drivers in his or her sector. So we have dedicated teams that spend their entire, their entire existence in specific industry sectors. We have dedicated teams in software, in lifestyle brands, in beauty and personal care, food, beverage, and ag, healthcare. And we continue adding dedicated teams that serve specific industries. And one thing that strikes me in hearing you list the, those sectors is that they all kind of have long-term tailwind behind them. I mean, whatever else happens in the world, you know, in 10 years, will, you know, you know, health and wellness be, you know, a more or less significant part of our lives more, you know, go through the other areas. Was that kind of thought process uh, intentional on your part or, did you more, you know, more involve more organically into the industry silos? Andy, when we decide to go into a specific sector, we look at a few things. Number one, is it a large enough sector where there are enough transactions, enough velocity and enough targets that are going to be bought and sold? Secondly, uh, are there, as you mentioned, are there tailwinds in that industry sector? Because we don't want to sell businesses in a dying industry sector. We want to, we want to ride that wave of growth. Um, thirdly, are private equity sponsors active in that sector? Because while we sell, I would say about half of our companies get sold to strategics, the other half gets sold to private equity sponsors. So private equity is very important to us. So we want to make sure that we're very relevant to our friends in the sponsor community. We look at all these elements. And then once we determine that those are good sectors, we look to see, do we have relevant track record and experience at Intrepid where we can be relevant when we go and compete for that business? Do we have enough experience to speak of so that we can win a mandate? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes to all of these, then we go and we either dedicate specific resources inside Intrepid to that category, or we'll go and hire outside bankers who share our values and culture and bring them to lead a certain industry sector. Ed, you talk a lot about culture, uh, and you also talk about uh, the benefits of finding that great athlete and adding uh, he or she to the team, regardless of where they reside. Is that a challenge? Uh, is it a challenge to uh, maintain that type of culture if you're not all under one roof? Um, I think the, the answer is yes, it is a challenge, but 
if there is a, a secret to do that successfully, it is 100% focused on finding the right individual. You, you know, you, you, when we look to hire a banker, the number one, number two, and number three things we focus on is does this individual fit in? Does that individual embrace our culture? And and frankly, the way we do that, Charlie, we don't have a, a, a magic bullet to determine how we do that, except we have lots of people interview that candidate. We have, in fact, what is remarkable, when we interview a banker for an MD position, we'll have that individual being interviewed by our analysts as well. And they always tell us, I've, we've never experienced this. You want a junior banker to interview me? And we say, yes, because if you're not accepted and embraced by the junior banker, if there's friction, it because the relationship doesn't work. So we want not only that, but we also have some of the operations people talk to these bankers to see, are they going to fit in? The reason we have incredibly low turnover is because we have a very cohesive team, Charlie. That's the, the only thing that we learned that works over time. I'm curious, but I'm aware of other firms that, you know, do uh, the kind of, you know, up and down interviews that you're, you're talking about uh, with, without being painfully specific. Are there examples you can think of where somebody who looked like they would be a fit, looked productive, got shot down because of reservations among the junior team members? Oh, all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. So how, I'm curious, give us, a, give us a, some more stories. How, how, how do senior guys with good books stumble when they're, when they're talking to... Uh, uh, well, listen, I'm, I, Andy, just a recent example. I mean, we were interviewing somebody for, um, I will leave out the industry sector because I don't want this individual to feel really bad. But it was a key industry sector that's very important to us. And this guy was interviewing... Uh, for an MD position, and he was going to have a pretty meaningful position at the firm. So he interviewed with several of us, but what came out in some of the discussions was that he was so focused on me, 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 and myself, and what's in it for me, and how much am I going to make if I do this, and how are you going to staff my deal team, and it was all about him. And after a while, it became apparent that this is his show. It's all about him. It's not. He's not going to be a team, uh, you know, a team player. And it didn't come out at the very beginning. It came sort of in the tenth, eleventh, and twelfth inter interview. Mm -hmm. And he was shocked when we turned him down. And he said, "Well, it was going well. What just happened?" <laughs> and we said, "Well, some of our junior bankers picked up on some things, and then we probed deeper into it. And I don't think we're going to be a good cultural fit." He was blown away. But it does come down to those intangibles that become the big drivers. What, what, what do they say? Uh, the downfall of the first person singular. Ed, you have shared lots of really thought-provoking um, insights and really interesting anecdotes with us over the last uh, 45 minutes or so. One, I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on how you think about risk, um, given your background and given the fact that you showed up in L.A., not speaking English as a 14-year-old. Charlie, I, some people comment that I have this quiet sense of confidence. And I always wonder, is that true? And where is it coming from, if that's the case? And 
I have to believe that it comes from my assessment of risk going back to the time when we migrated, my family and I migrated to this country. And it goes to what I observed my dad experience. When I think of risk, there's no greater risk than what my dad did. He picked up his family, uprooted the entire family when he was 50 years old and left Romania to come to a country whose language he did not speak. And he left with $5,000 in his pocket after a lifetime of work. He had to figure out how to provide for his family and how to become successful quickly. That to me defines risk. When you're landing, when you're jumping without a safety net, that is risk. As you were starting to build Intrepid with the guys, I mean, your, your, uh, your father was in his later years. Would, would you still turn to him for advice? You, you know, Andy, I, I, it's funny you should say that because oftentimes I would go to him and the advice he would give me would be more fundamental, not specific. And when I would try to get into the more specific attributes of the situation or 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 uh, or um, facts, he would look at me in a very sincere way that only my dad could do, and he would say, "Ed, he would actually would call me Eddie. Is it Eddie? I would love to advise you on this, but I don't really understand your business, so I cannot give you advice. You have to figure it out." And I appreciated that because. How many people would just say that? We all try to give people advice, right? But sometimes we give advice when we don't have the authority or the knowledge base to give that advice. He was such a pure soul, such a sincere human being that he would be open about it. They'd say, you're on your own on this one. Before we go, Ed, we uh, understand that music is one of your passions. Uh, Tell us something about a song or musical piece that is meaningful to you. Listen, I, uh, music is important to me. Uh, I, uh, w- when I want to have some downtime, I escape just listening to a good tune. And I may surprise you by being super boring when I tell you that one of my favorite, all-time favorite songs is Hotel California. Because I grew up, believe it or not, in Romania, they used to play that song. So I remember in my early childhood, that I would listen to the Eagles Hotel California. And then I focused on the words. And this it's about this magical place in California that I can dream about and I can think about what I could become. And that's the that's the story of my immigrant life coming to this place, to this great country, to make something better of myself than I could have in the old country. So it's Hotel California. Well, Ed, I, I can't think of a better way to wrap up our conversations than there. You've been uh, not only generous with your time, but uh, immensely generous with sharing the stories that uh, I think uh, certainly resonate with me, I'm sure with Andy, and I'm sure with uh, most everyone that has listened and spent the time hearing about your story. So uh, grateful for your willingness to dive in and uh, wishing you and your partners nothing but success uh, on a go forward basis. Thank you, Charlie. Thank you, Andy. Ed, thank you. Great to have you.
Thank you for joining us for this episode of Middle Market Musings. We'd like to extend our sincere thanks to Ed Bagdasarian for joining us today, as well as our sponsors, New Heritage Capital and Greenberg Variations Capital, as well as our media partner, PE Professional Digest. Thanks as well to our editor, Jason Sapalo. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, we'd encourage you to like and follow Middle Market Musings on Spotify, Apple, or whichever provider you use to access podcasts. And of course, feel free to share with your friends. Thanks very much. And we look forward to catching you on the next one.